0: Welcome to Brandon in Nevada. We are utterly delighted to be joined by David Edmonds, who is the patron saint of popular philosophy. David will be known to everyone who listens to our show as one of the co-hosts of Philosophy Bites, and he's just written an absolutely outstanding book on Derek Parfit. And David has a personal connection to Derek. Would you like to start by telling us a bit about that?
1: The personal connection is that I studied at Oxford. I did what's called PPE, Politics, Philosophy, and Economics. And then I went on to do the BPhil, which is a two-year postgraduate degree. And it was the degree that in the 70s, 60s, 70s, if you got that degree, you could then go on to teach. And then subsequently, it wasn't enough and you had to get a PhD. But as part of the BPhil, you do a dissertation. And my dissertation was on obligations to future generations. And one of my co-supervisors was Derek. So that's how I... First knew him and then subsequently I did a PhD and my PhD supervisor was a woman called Janet Radcliffe Richards, who was famous for writing a, a brilliant book called The Skeptical Feminist. And Janet became married Derek a few, some sometime later. So I am the only person in the world. It's a very small claim to fame, but I'm the only person in the world to have been taught by both Derek and Janet.
2: So David, I've been loving your book. I've been listening to the audiobook version of it and it's beautifully narrated. It was recently released for anyone who's listening. Please grab a copy. It's fantastic. So I wonder if you couldn't tell us a little bit more about where Derek comes from, his childhood and the kind of person that he developed from.
1: He was born in 1942 in China. Both his parents were Christian missionaries. All four of his grandparents were christian missionaries he himself had a sort of fervent christian religious belief until i think the age of about 7 when he found it impossible to reconcile the existence of god with suffering in the world uh, they moved back to the uk via america firstly to london then they settle in oxford north oxford where he goes to uh, kind of prestigious prep school. And from there he gets the top scholarship to Britain's most famous, privileged, powerful public school, private school in the country, which is called Eton, where so many of our prime ministers have come from. It has an absurd kind of over domination in public life in Britain. So many people in powerful positions have been educated at Eton. He went to Eton, not as a paying pupil, but as a what's called a King scholar. He was the leading scholar. And from Eton, he went to Oxford where he was a historian from Oxford. He was a Harkness fellowship in America, which was like a kind of Rhodes scholarship where British students went to study for two years in America. That's where he fell in love with philosophy. He went back to Oxford to study for the b field, the degree that I did. He never completed the b because he took the exams for All Souls, which is a college in Oxford where you don't need to do any teaching. And he applied for a seven-year research position, which he got. And basically he spent the rest of his life in All Souls. So on the face of it, not a very interesting life. He spends his life entirely within cloisters. The cloisters of his private prep school, the cloisters of Eton, the cloisters of Oxford, his Oxford undergraduate college, the cloisters of Harvard in America, comes back to the cloisters of Oxford and the cloisters of all souls. His life is in cloisters. Not very much happens. There's no murder. There's no revolution. And yet he's a very interesting personality. And so my book is about, of course, his ideas, because some people regard him as the most important moral philosopher since John Stuart Mill. Some people make that huge claim. He divides people. So some people regard him as much less significant, but a lot of philosophers think he's really one of the most important moral philosophers of the last 20th century, of the last century. And as I say, a very interesting bloke. So the book is a combination of his life and his ideas.
0: As you say, Derek's one of those people who's just widely loved by professional academic philosophers because you know his his ideas were so novel and exciting, and he writes in this fascinating way. But is not well known to the public. Why should the public care about Derek? What are the ideas that you know have had such a strong impact and may have an impact on the public's life as well?
1: That's a huge question. So let me. Just sketch it very briefly, and then, if you want, we can go down various routes and we can go into greater detail. He writes a book called Reasons and Persons, which comes out in 1984, which I read in about 1986. And it's got a very interesting backstory, which we can also talk about if you want. It's a very strange book because it has so much in it. It's got literally thousands of little arguments, and one opponent of the book uh, a well-known philosopher called David Wiggins told me that reading it was like being stabbed to death with a toothpick. These tiny little arguments. I loved it. Lots of philosophers love it and it had a big impact on lots of philosophers. And it's really a combination of different books, but two themes, two big areas in that book, section three and section four. Section three is the question of personal identity, what it is that makes me the same person over time. And why am I the same person now as I was when I was a baby, as I will be when I am 85? What does it mean to say I'm the same person? What's important about that relationship between me now and past selves and future selves? A very old philosophical question, and he has very novel ideas and thought experiments, which he brings to that. That's one area. The second area which he single-handedly, I mentioned personal identity, has been covered by philosophers before. Section four in Reasons and Persons is about future people, the subject of my b dissertation, and really our obligations to future people. And he comes up with lots of puzzles and paradoxes and conundrums. And he invents that. Personal identity has been done by many philosophers, going all the way back to John Locke and, b- and way before. Really what's sometimes now called population ethics is really created by Derek. And and now it's a thriving subgenre of moral philosophy, but it barely existed until Derek came along and thought up all these weird little puzzles and problems. And that is another important reason to care about Derek. He just, as a sidebar, he writes about other little things every now and again. So he writes this very interesting essay about equality, He gets interested in equality later on, and he writes about equality. That's something that should concern us all, what we mean by equality, what matters in equality. It's a very short article, but it's been very influential. Everything he touches, he has an original perspective on. He's a very original thinker. He comes at things afresh and brings sort of new perspectives on sometimes old problems, and sometimes he invents these new problems. So we should care about it because they're interesting topics in and of themselves, but also because they have practical implications.
2: To start with, I'd like to talk about the teletransporter. It's one of my favorite thought experiments, and it really changed the way that philosophers and perhaps non-philosophers who've seen the teletransporter in its various guises in Star Trek episodes and other forms of popular media have thought about the identity problem or the Problem of identifying ourselves over time. Can you give the thought experiment and talk a little bit about it?
1: Yeah. So the thought experiment is you imagine you go into a Star Trek like teletransporter and all your molecules are copied and you go up to Mars and they're reconstituted in Mars. And You hang around in Mars, then you come back, (laughs) and you you're back on Earth, and then you do this sort of many times, and then one time you're transported, you're copied, and you're transported to Mars, and you're allowed to speak to yourself. So you're the the, original, as it were, the original is on Earth, and the copy is on Mars, and then what happens is that you're told that something's gone wrong, and the original on Earth is going to implode, die. But your copy on Mars will continue to exist. And Derek asks one to imagine what you should, would feel, what you should feel. Should you think that you continue to exist because this copy exists? Should you think that you died? And should that matter to you? So that's the thought experiment. And Derek's idea is that pretty much everything important continues. So you may be a copy of yourself, but you are psychologically continuous with yourself. You've got the same memories, you've got the same dispositions, and what's important continues to exist. And the fact that you on earth have ceased to exist shouldn't matter. What matters is that thing out there, the entity out there, is entirely psychologically continuous with you, that's what should matter to you. You shouldn't worry too much that the kind of the version on earth of you ceases to exist.
0: So one of the longstanding debates that I have with Jason around personal identity is what are the things that could lead you to no longer exist? And so it seems that for Parfit, what matters is really your mental states, that your original physical body is unimportant, as long as you have this continuity between your beliefs and your ideas, and that can persist you could survive. And that's why the clone survives, even if the original ceases to exist. And so one of the questions is, what happens if your psychological states get very badly disrupted? So we can imagine that the body persists, but you have Alzheimer's and you have severe dementia and your your memories disappear. We might think that you cease to exist under those conditions. But what happens if you do something a bit more temporary? So you take a very strong hallucinogenic substance which puts you into a state of delusions, your, your memories disappear, your ordinary beliefs disappear, the way that you engage the world is entirely different. But then after the drug wears off, those belief states return. Now, it seems that you could hold different views on this. The view I hold is that, let's say you maybe cease to exist for some moment of time, and then you're resurrected. Jason holds the view that you die, that there's no such thing as gappy existence, that what happens is that Your psychological states changed significantly that ended mark one mark two was the deranged maniac on the lsd or the mushrooms or whatever it is and mark three is the successor and i wondered if you had a view on what parfit would think about all this
1: so i think parfit takes a middle way between your two positions death sounds very final and the way i like to think about parfit's view of personal identity is this may or may not cheer you up, maybe it will depress you, is that we're dying every second, (laughs) every moment we're dying, in the sense that every moment we're evolving, and because he believes that there's no essence, one of his central views about personal identity is there's no essence of us, so if you're a religious believer, there's a simple answer to personal identity, You you might believe in the soul, and then you would say, what makes me the same person over time is that I have the same soul. I have an immutable part of me that is unchanging that continues to exist. That's what makes me. Parfit, despite his Christian background, is a secular philosopher, secular moral thinker. He doesn't accept this picture of the soul. He doesn't accept that we have an essence. He thinks that we're merely a body and a mind and that we're continually changing. In the example where you have alzheimer's i think he would say you've lost m- much maybe not everything because in that with when you've got alzheimer's you don't lose everything P- people often say some people will say fred is not the same person that fred was that's a very common thing to hear it's fred is a different person but then you also hear people say fred has gone back and still see fred in there somewhere and they mean that there are bits of Fred there and the bits that aren't there. And they mean about his character. So that Fred might not have any of Fred's memories. And so lots of Fred seems to have disappeared. And yet there are some dispositional characteristics that Fred still has. You might see flashes of humour that Fred once had, or Fred might be, uh, have the same generosity of spirit or something like that. And Parfit was, so Parfit would say he's in line with those intuitions, say much of what Ha- you have lost much of your, of what matters to you, has gone. If it were then to come back, which is, is then your hallucinogenic hallucinogenic example, I don't th- think he would say Jason, oh you've died and now you've recovered. He doesn't need that language. He would say, oh you've just got back much of what you had. You don't need to have this death story. You've just, as it were, it's just reappeared. And given that. That was what's important to you in your pre-hallucigenic state you've recovered what's important to you so i think it's a middle ground between you mark and you jason he doesn't need to say you've died and you've now been reborn but you've recovered what mattered to you originally i think that's what derek would say
2: i think what's interesting is this question of why it's you who's recovered what you've had so in virtue of what is it the same person you spoke earlier about continuity. So is continuity a causal relation or what is it? Is it just similarity that the person, let's say who recovers from Alzheimer's, which my understanding is that doesn't happen except sporadically, but let's just say it's a permanent recovery from Alzheimer's. That person, have they, it, it seems like there's some weird causal chain going on there. There were these mental states which were then lost and then recovered, but we might think there's not really a nice story of causal continuity, or in the drug case, you take the LSD, there's this radical change, and then the person the next day is very similar to the person the day before the LSD, except maybe with some bogus enlightenment so I just I, I wonder there's that there's this well, uncomfortable gap,
1: yeah, you're getting very deep into the weeds of personal identity philosophy. So I applaud you for that. But you're, this is, these are very difficult questions. So I was asked the other day, did Derek change his mind about anything? And I think there were very few examples of Derek changing his mind about anything. But in this area of personal identity, there is evidence that he changed his mind in a couple of ways about personal identity. One is what you just mentioned, that I think he later on wanted there to be a kind of causal story, which I think in Reasons and Persons doesn't, isn't really there because as you say, the psychological continuity seems to be enough on its own. And if there's no causal story, that doesn't seem like it matters. And I think later on, he felt the need for a causal story in the way that you're hinting at. Another area is that he never became an animalist. An animalist says that what we are is essentially animals, where it's essentially organisms, and that's a strong strain in this area of philosophy. But he was, I think, convinced by some arguments that although we are not animals, we are, what matters to us is psychological continuity. Nonetheless, the psychological aspect of us has to exist within a kind of vehicle, as it were, within a body. So although we're not our bodies, and it's not our bodies that matter, if we lose our toenails or our arms, or that's not affecting our personal identity, that's not what matters. He later on came to the view that psychological, our psychological continuity, and this is related to your causal story, has to exist within a kind of physical entity. So I think Jeff McMahon, in fact, a very good friend of Derek's, I think he described it to me as something like, the horn can't exist on its own of a car. It has to exist as part of the car. But the horn is not itself the car. The horn can make a noise and stuff. It's not the car making the noise. It's the horn making a noise. And I guess his kind of mature views on personal identity were a little like that. Now, the thing to know about Derek and personal identity is the one thing that remains absolutely uniform throughout his philosophical life is the view that identity is people say, are you identical with the past, your past self and the future? That is not what matters. Identity is not the key thing. It is this psychological connectedness. That's the key thing. And that even though he changed his, you've already come up with this very interesting idea about causation and then this. There's this view about, does psychological continuity have to sit within a particular organism? Even when you take those kind of important subtleties, his central argument remains the same, which is, it's not, uh, identity itself is not what matters. And he has, we talked about the transportation thought experiment, he has these other thought experiments, I just mentioned one, which seems to suggest that identity is not what matters. So he imagines that a, um, a brother is biologically dying and one hemisphere of the brother's brain is put into his, that there are triplets into brother B and one hemisphere of the person's brain is, to put, is put into a brother C. Um, and we know that this is not totally fanciful because we know that with epilepsy, they can cut the brain stem and you get these two spheres of consciousness. And We have these two spheres of consciousness in our brain, and he says, Which is the original brother? Is it brother B or is it brother C? Now, it seems entirely arbitrary to say that it's brother B or indeed that it's brother C. Why would it be just be one brother rather than the other brother? But we can't say it's both brothers because both brothers will then go off and have independent lives, they'll have different memories, they'll have different experiences, they might marry different people obviously they will marry different people if they get married have different kids they'll have different lives they're not clearly identical to themselves to each other if they're not identical to each other they can't be identical to the original brother so what do we say about that case we just don't know we just don't know what to say about that case but Derek says we don't know what to say about that case in terms of identity what we can say is we've got psychological continuity in both brothers so it's two for the price of one. That you should be doubly pleased. that You carry on existing in two branches of life. And although we don't know what to say about identity, we do. We, we have a story about psychological continuity and you should welcome the fact that you, as it were, you now exist in these two different branches. So
0: I suppose there's an element in which people use that idea all the time, where they say, my father lives on through his work or through his ideas. Yeah. And then we might think that, the thing that made you uniquely you the particular beliefs you had really can echo through multiple generations and you can carry that spirit going forward even if your physical body ceases and you might think that you can be multiply realized in the way that the brother lives on in these two siblings that a certain idea or a certain personality trait that was essentially you lives on multiply in all these other people but maybe we're now in some sort of strange metaphorical language that doesn't really match what we mean when we talk about surviving. And so it, there's a kind of mystical strand you could take where you can say you live on in this way, or you can say, no, as soon as the brother had his, had his brain cut in two, that was it. That brother ceased to exist. And now we have these things that kind of look like him floating around, these simulacra, but there's no survivorship.
1: You could certainly say that. And Derek clearly stands opposed to that way of looking at us and looking at the world. And there's a famous passage where he talks about how this changes his attitude to death, that before then he thought he was in some glass tunnel that was coming to an end somehow, and now he suddenly felt (coughs) liberated. And the implications of his view are, are many, but a big one is that suddenly if you take the Derek position you feel a slightly weaker connection between your current self and your future selves and your past selves you've lost the idea of an essence we're constantly changing we might i can barely remember what i was like when i was 10 years old i have very few memories of being younger than that we have a weaker relationship with our past selves and our future selves and Because there's no essence of us, there's no... We suddenly have a stronger link. We're suddenly closer to other people, in Derek's view. It, at the same time as it attenuates our connection to the future and the past, it strengthens our connection to other people, which was in line with many of his consequentialist instincts. Yeah, I think many of his arguments across a whole range of different philosophical questions end up in roughly the same place. And, and this is just the one example of where he settled a consequentialist result of his philosophical arguments that suddenly it becomes more important to care more about the world and less about ourselves and perhaps less about our friends and family. And also perhaps less about, we can go on to talk about this, perhaps more about future people as well. The fact that they don't exist now, that they're, they're distant in time, is irrelevant. And that we, sh- that we should care about those lives as well as lives that are currently existing on planet Earth.
2: So that's a very, good, very important point, is that one of Derek Parfit's main contributions to philosophy is what's often termed the non-identity problem. Can you speak a bit more about it and explain? It sounds like it's had quite a big impact on your life, given that it was the topic of your work.
1: Well, yeah, it was part of the topic of my work. The non-identity problem, the way I like to explain it is that really until Derek, everybody had this very basic assumption, which was that we were doing something bad. If we were doing something bad for particular people, Um, So if I lie to somebody, I'm doing something bad because there's a particular person I'm lying to. If I hit somebody, I'm doing something bad because there's a particular person that I'm hitting. Derek realized there was a whole range of philosophical issues where it looks like we're doing something bad, where we're not doing anything bad for any particular person. So I'll explain his key example and then how he extends that. So he has an example and i have a rider here because it's a it's an example from the 1980s and to me it feels quite classist and possibly a bit sexist so i i add that kind of warning now but it's about a 14 year old girl who's thinking of having a child and you could persuade the 14 year old girl to postpone the decision and have that child in 10 15 years time and Obviously, if the fourteen-year-old girl has a child now, it's probably not good for the fourteen-year-old girl's life. But putting that to one side, we think that one of the things wrong with the fourteen-year-old girl having a child now is that the child who will be born will have a bad start in life because it's not ideal to have a fourteen-year-old mother, and so it's bad for the it's bad for the child. So that's a natural instinct. And then Derek points out if the fourteen-year-old girl has child, presumably that the child has a, an okay life. The child's life is better than nothing. It's not a life full of total suffering. If the girl postpones the decision and becomes a woman and becomes a mother later, the child she has 10 years later is obviously not the same child. It's a different child. If the 14 year old girl has the child now and ignores your advice to postpone the decision. Who is she harmed? She hasn't harmed the child she's going to that she would give birth to because that child would not exist. Another child would exist. We're all a unique combination of a particular egg and a particular sperm and various actions can change who exists and who doesn't exist. So that's the very basic thought. And then he goes on to extend that to a whole range of other policy decisions, which we can talk about, which will affect the types of people who exist. And then the puzzle is, if we do something that affects the identity of future people, what have we done bad if we've done nothing bad for any particular person?
0: So it seems like one view you could take is that it's not about duties to particular beings, but that it is about adding up pleasure and pain in the sky. So when you take the view from nowhere, you say, what's going to cause more suffering or you know, cause more pleasure, and that you have some kind of obligation to do that. So you could say on that basis, then, you know, that the child that's born with disabilities or born to the young mother is unable to support their child will have less capacity for experiencing pain, more capacity for suffering versus the other being that we brought in under different conditions. And that could create the obligation. There's another view which can be taken david benatar's view which is that always being born will guarantee that you will experience some form of harm that the nature of life is that you will be harmed at some point you will experience some pain whereas if you're never brought into existence you will experience no pain and on that basis it's always wrong for the being to bring them into existence and david benatar takes the view that solves a lot of the population ethics problems because the answer is the mass extinction of humanity through not bringing them to existence.
1: So I'm not an expert on David Benatar, but I know his arguments about this and, and intuitively they don't seem to, they don't appeal to me. I've got kids and I don't think that I've done my kids a bad turn by bringing them into the world. I don't think they resent being brought into the world. I think on balance, their lives are much better than nothing and their balance of happiness over pain is so far in the credit that I've done them a favor. But your other solution is the solution that Derek adopts himself. And it's another way in which he reaches this consequentialist worldview that he has. So for example, you imagine that, I always use the example that Derek uses because you can see how important and topical it is, climate change. In one scenario, you imagine that you do nothing about climate change and that in three or four generations down the line, there are people on planet Earth. Let's say there are the same number of people, just for simplicity's sake. That let's say there are 8 billion people on planet Earth, and they have not good lives because we've done nothing about climate change. Their lives are blighted by typhoons and hurricanes and by droughts and by mass migration and all the things we fear about climate change. So that's one option. Another option is that we do something, let's say we do something drastic about climate change and we stop people traveling from one country to the next. We ban cars, we ban planes. That's not going to happen, but let's imagine we did that. And as a result, three generations down the line, let's imagine there's the same number of people. There are 8 billion people who have much better lives because we've tackled climate change. Now, of course, um, it's a microcosm. or um, it's, The 14-year-old girl example is a microcosm of that example. Because if we banned cars, and we banned planes, and we stopped people, and we took away people's passports and stopped them moving from country to country, there would be an entirely different set of people who would then exist in three generations time. Now. If we imagine that in three generations time, there was exactly the same number of people. So we've got the choice of 8 billion flourishing lives or 8 billion miserable lives. Clearly, we should go for the option where we've got 8 billion flourishing lives. And the reason we should go for that option is because those lives are better than these 8 billion miserable lives. They're not the same lives. They're entirely different lives. What we're doing is we're comparing one set of lives with another set of lives. If we went down the route of doing nothing about climate change, we would have these 8 billion lives. We wouldn't have hurt anybody. Assuming that those lives are still, despite the droughts and all those problems, assuming those lives are still better than nothing, we wouldn't have harmed anybody because those people would not otherwise have existed. So we can't say we've harmed any particular people. We have to go down the route you suggested, Mark, in your first explanation. We have to say the reason we've done something wrong is we've ended up producing a whole bunch of lives that are much less well off than a whole other bunch of lives that we could have produced had we done something more sensible.
2: To non-philosophers listening to these thought experiments and these considerations, they might find them quite bizarre. So the teletransporter, thinking about future lives that may or may not exist, and they might be wondering what kind of minds did they issue from? What kind of minds did Derek possess?
1: Okay. I'll answer that. But I just want to say for non-philosophers, this might, these might sound very abstract, obtuse (laughs) thought experiments, but actually they are important. What it is that makes me the same person over time is important. It might affect, for example, how I think I should plan for the future. It might affect how much money I think I should put in my pension plan. It might affect how I feel about, things that I did 30 years ago long lost long past crimes De- Derek has this idea that future people are as important as current people and he he imagines that a piece of glass is left in a wood and he says imagine that stepped on tomorrow that's a very bad thing by a child there'll be blood there'll be pain he says imagine it's not stepped at, stepped on tomorrow imagine it it goes un discovered for 100 years and is stepped on by a child in the future, that child still bleeds, that child still feels in pain. It makes no moral difference whether we're affecting people now or affecting people in 100 years' time. If that's right, then that clearly has very important implications for how we should regard the future and how we should think about the harms that we are creating in the future. So there are very huge practical implications. Now to get to your question what kind of mind do they come from? They come from a very interesting, he's a very interesting person, I think. My big puzzle in the book was that when I wrote the book, I assumed that the Derek I knew in later life was the Derek that had always been, and it turns out that's not the case. So the Derek, let's call him Derek One, ironically, I I tried to uncover what was his identity. Spends all his life working about personal identity. And my sort of book is trying to work out what's the real Derek, what's the essence of Derek, which of course is not a question he would like. But in his early life, he's got so many interests. He's interested in, he's a historian initially, he's a debater, he's a chess player, he's a musician. He's interested in everything. He gets involved in in, in pop, he's interested in politics. Uh, He has girlfriends and he has a kind of rich life. And slowly he sheds all his interests. And then by the time I was taught by him, he's only got two interests. He's got philosophy and he's got photography. And his photography is an obsession with him. He spends every year going to the same places. He goes to Venice, he goes to St. Petersburg, as it was Leningrad, as it was then. And he photographs Oxford, those are his three venues. And he photographs the same buildings every year at sunset and sunrise. And then he spends thousands of his pounds of his savings trying to make the perfect photos. This was before Photoshop when it was very expensive to touch up photos. And he would send them back and forth to these experts and he would change the tint of the photos and if he'd want them. To have more yellow or more pink and he would want the people to be removed from the photo and if he saw a lamppost in the photo he might want that removed a very expensive process and as i say he spent an incredible amount of money trying to perfect these photos and then by about the turn of the century he then dispenses with photography and all that's left is philosophy and what he behaves he increasingly becomes very eccentric and I, <laughs> there are lots of examples of that so Often his behavior is very eccentric. So the puzzle was, what do these two Dereks have in common, if anything? And what's the real Derek? Who's the real Derek? What, what on earth happens to Derek? How does he change so dramatically?
0: So there's a famous example of someone becoming a moral saint, where they sacrifice every feature of their life to become perfectly moral that they give away one of their kidneys, that they have no luxury items, that they spend their time dealing with the sick, donating whatever excess capital they have. And the view is that you've missed out on a rich life, that no one would want their child to become a moral saint. And maybe there's a sense in which Derek becomes the academic saint, that you decide that you're going to pursue truth relentlessly, that you're going to try and solve one of the fundamental problems, which is where does morality come from? And in order to do that, you have to strip off everything else. So I know, one of the things that he used to do was drink his coffee cold, where well, like instant coffee cold, because it saved time that he would eat almost identical meals, which were which I think were vegan and rather tasteless, that this paring down put him on this voyage. And maybe if you think that future generations matter a lot, because they're going to be around for so much longer than your individual life, that it's worth making these sacrifices if you can solve fundamental problems for them. That you become the ultimate utilitarian where you say if i can bestow the gift upon humanity of solving where morality comes from think about how much good that would do and my life as a mere mortal is not that significant and i get to live on in some kind of ways through the gifts that i bestow upon them i suppose one of the questions is does derek succeed does he solve this problem of where morality comes from his last book is on what matters which he worked on for 25 years and he tries to blend all the major moral theories together. How does that project go?
1: So there's a lot in that question. Susan Wolf, who writes about the moral saint, says that the moral saint, as you say, lots, loses lots of aspects of what makes an important life, including, I think she says, a sense of humor. It's very difficult to be a moral saint and to be funny, because often to have a sense of humor is to have a bit of cruelty about you, that lots of humor is linked to cruelty. And interestingly, actually, and amazingly, one of the most extraordinary aspects of Derek's personality is that he had no cruelty in him at all, nothing. And I've read um, from the beginning of his life to the end of his life, I've read hundreds of letters and articles. There isn't a scintilla of malevolence. Uh, And I've I've never come across another human being for whom that is true. So he that was a remarkable thing about Derek, that there's nothing of that. It's a matter of empiricism. There is an empirical question about whether, if you do devote yourself in this very single-minded way, you are more likely to succeed in your outcome, in your goals. And I'm not at all convinced by that premise. I don't think that premise should be accepted at all. I think he didn't help himself because he gave up everything else. I don't think it helped his philosophy. In fact, on the contrary, it's quite possible that immersing himself in this very narrow world, it certainly harmed his life because it meant that he cut himself off from friends and from relationships and he deprived himself of joyous occasions. He lost out on so much people's weddings and so on. It cost him a lot in terms of his life, but it possibly also cost him something in terms of his academic life, because he had so little to draw on, he was so narrowly focused. And I think his motivation was possibly what you suggest, that despite all that, I think he felt that he was one of a number of people capable of tackling difficult issues, and maybe it was a a kind of duty i don't know maybe not a duty but i think he felt that it mattered it was so important that these other things mattered less so again i think he was wrong about that i think he was very wrong about that but then your overarching question is maybe it would all have been worthwhile if he would pulled it off if at the end of it he'd come up with the meaning of life and it wasn't 42 it's 42 and a half and he could brandish this result and prove it to everybody else. And everybody said, Derek, you're right, it's 42 and a half and everything is now different. For one thing, everything wouldn't have been different even if he had 42 and a half, even if he had the, people would carry on living their lives and things that matter to us on the whole would carry on mattering to us. Our friends and family and our projects would continue to exist. So if he had that 42 and a half solution, I don't think it would have made a big difference in any case. But there are people who disagree with me. I'm a huge fan of early Derek's work, less of a fan of his later work. I think his later work is much less successful. And I think he doesn't convince a lot of philosophers that he has discovered that moral facts exist and that morality is objective. He is of the view that if he can't demonstrate that, if he can't prove that, his life is meaningless and all our lives are meaningless. I don't think that's true. I, don't th- I, think, it's, I think it's not true that if he, if he can't prove it, our lives are meaningless. And I think he doesn't prove it. Nonetheless, he obviously has an important life and he comes up with important ideas. He's a very important philosopher. His life is certainly not meaningless, even if he hasn't proved that life itself, that, that morality is itself is objective.
2: So one of our guests that we've had on previously, you mentioned earlier in the discussion is Jeff Jeff McMahon. And when Jeff talks about Derek, and he talks quite a lot about Derek in our episode with him, he speaks about Derek almost in haloed terms. And whenever guests come on our show and mention Derek's work, there's always this sense that Derek was an incredible man who affected people very deeply. And as you say, it seems like that is significant regardless of whether he solved the bigger problem. And just the fact that you've written a biography means that he impacted your life significantly. And people continue to show an interest in his work regardless of whether they're convinced by the ideas. And this seems to be a tension that a lot of philosophers feel with their work is that sometimes no one cares about the work, not even other philosophers or no one agrees. Although in Derek's case, that's not the case. People buy into a lot of his ideas. But it seems like philosophers can have an impact as humans too.
1: He had a big impact on lots of people's lives in lots of ways. I compare him in one part of the book with Wittgenstein. and Wittgenstein also had a big impact on lots of people's lives, but in a malevolent way. Wittgenstein was always trying to persuade people to give up philosophy. Wittgenstein thought that philosophy was a waste of time and what they should be doing was becoming carpenters and plumbers and working with their hands. That was an honourable thing to do, and sticking in within the ivory tower, dabbling around with philosophical ideas—that was a life that was not to be recommended. And actually, in a way, although Wittgenstein spent most of his life, in, a lot of his life in an academic context, he was al- he was almost contemptuous of that kind of life. Derek was the opposite. Derek tried to persuade everybody to do philosophy. Derek thought that philosophy was the key. Subject that mattered more than any other subject, and when people would arrive at All Souls' his college, and they were historians or whatever, he would try and persuade them to give up history, and to become philosophers. And I don't think Wittgenstein consciously sought out disciples. Derek certainly didn't consciously sought out disciples. Many people were heavily influenced him. He was extremely generous with his time. Everybody says that that as long as it was philosophy you wanted to talk about, and not football or shopping or the weather, then he would give you as much time as you wanted. And he was not a snob. So clearly he respected some philosophers more than others. It would be difficult not to, he understood who the really important, powerful philosophers of his generation were. But if you wanted to talk philosophy with Derek, he would give you the time of the day. And you mentioned Jeff McMahon, Jeff, Jeff talks in the, in the book, Jeff has a 14 hour tutorial with Derek, 14 hours. And uh, Derek had a very strong bladder. Derek didn't need to have toilet breaks, but some of these people would go to Derek and they would have these long tutorials and they desperately, they needed to go to loo. And actually sometimes they invented loo breaks because they just, it was too intense and they needed to get away and have their own thoughts for two or three minutes before they would come back to the tutorial. So he he was extremely generous and Lots of people, I think, were very, quite rightly, extremely appreciative about that. And if you look at moral philosophy books from a certain generation in the sort of 80s and 90s, they invariably end up there, there's a long list of acknowledgements, and then there's a final paragraph where they say, and finally, I must thank Derek Parfit, whose comments were longer than the original manuscript itself, who really should be named as the co-author on this book, blah, blah, blah. There's a kind of pattern of them. They don't think there's a pattern, but actually you can see a kind of template across this whole number of books. But the final thing to say, which I mentioned right at the beginning of the book, is that Derek divides philosophers. So if you like doing philosophy in Derek's way, and I do like doing philosophy in Derek's way, I'm a kind of I'm a chess player. Derek has a kind of chess players approach to philosophy. There are these premises and conclusions, and there's lots of little arguments and it's lots of little puzzles. If you like doing philosophy this way, lots of thought experiments, then Derek is your man. Derek, Derek's the bee's knees. Derek you know, is the top dog. But there are, lots of, there are philosophers who hate that way of doing moral philosophy. And for them, Derek does moral philosophy in completely the wrong way. So he definitely has, you know, even People who don't like Wittgenstein's philosophy acknowledge that Wittgenstein is a colossus. That's not quite true of Derek. So Derek is a much more divisive figure, I think, in moral philosophy. So there's a whole set of thinkers who regard him as one of the greats. And there is another set who think that he just approaches philosophy in completely the wrong way. I, obviously I wrote the book. I'm a, I'm a Parfitian, I think Reasons and Persons is a very important book that will be read in decades to come. But I just, you know, I know enough about the philosophy scene to know that my view is not universally shared.
0: So you've had the wonderful privilege of interviewing hundreds of philosophers and getting a sense of different ways in which philosophers think and express themselves and have their ideas out there. And you're in quite a good position to think about this metaphilosophical problem of what is the right way to do philosophy and you've given an indication that derek had a particular way of doing it do you think that there are better and worse ways of doing philosophy do you think that there are certain methods that philosophers ought to use and others which they ought to abandon
1: i think it's difficult to give one answer across the whole range of philosophical domains because i think more philosophy and logic and philosophy of mind and linguistics and and, mult, and aesthetics, they, they all have different sets of problems and sometimes there are different ways of approaching the solutions. I do like reflective equilibrium as a general sort of method whereby you have sort of principles which you then test against individual cases and you, some, you, you find some kind of balance between general theory and sort of individual cases and which you try and uh, the individual cases either then cause you to abandon the general principles or modify the general principles, or sometimes your individual intuitions, you reject the individual intuitions because you think the principles are too strong. And in this particular case, you think your individual intuition is unreliable. So you reach eventually some kind of reflective equilibrium between the abstract and the particular. I do quite like that as a universal way of looking at philosophy, but I think it's very difficult to say that's the way to do all aspects of philosophy because they are so very different.
2: So, something you spoke about, David, was just his tremendous ability to concentrate on an issue, devote his life to an issue, be prepared to discuss it for. 10 plus hour tuitions really focus on a particular problem. And that problem was philosophy, and that problem was the source of ethics. And then before that, the identity problem and the non identity problem. Some people say that sounds like an autistic trait. So it sounds an obsession with a particular element of the world, which a lot of autistic people display. And it's also perhaps the source of his success in certain ways that it allowed him to really focus. How would you say that characterizes or mischaracterizes his life?
1: That's a good question. And the word obsession is possibly the word that crops up most apart from the word and, or the word obsession (laughs) crops up a lot in the book. Of course, autism is a very complicated diagnosis. And there's a whole basket of sort of symptoms. And it's very difficult to diagnose somebody not a a sort of expert but Derek did wonder himself whether he was autistic so I found some documentation where he suggests as much to various people and um, although you say extreme concentration is one criterion of course it is but there's a whole bunch of other criteria and Derek seems to tick most of the boxes actually in terms of social awkwardness and so on regular lifestyle, I found it difficult precisely because I mentioned earlier, that doesn't seem to be the early Derek. And autism is not something that you develop. Autism is something you have throughout your life. Well, I won't give it too much away, actually, because that's in the final chapter of the book. Read the book. But I try and come up with a solution that explains the difference between Derek one and Derek two, in which autism plays a part in the explanation, let me just put it that way.
0: So it sounded like writing this book was just an enormous endeavour and that you had to encounter Derek's writings, but then also in, in the sense that those that were published and those that were private, the book references, long letters, poetry from him when he was a child. What are the salacious things that you came across that didn't make the book?
1: So (laughs) I got a nice review in one of the journals, and there was one line which said, it's very favorable review, but it was one line which said, every now and again, you feel the dead hand of discretion in the book. So I'm obviously not gonna tell you. If I were to tell you, I may as well have put it in the book. There were one or two things I decided I wanted to leave out but everything that needed to be in there to tell the story is in the book and there are some strange stories in the book there's lots of strange stories in the book there's lots of weird anecdotes baffling things that derek does there's a lot of stuff in the book i didn't leave out anything that would have provided any explanatory power in terms of him as a person or in terms of the ideas. He only died in 2017. I did more than 200 interviews. There were a lot of people around, of course, who still knew Derek. There are a lot of people around for whom is a very important figure. There were one or two things I left out. I'm not going to tell you what they were, but on the... the, the, on the whole i'm not gonna say on the whole it, the story is if i were to put them in it would make no difference to the story i would say that